0: Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and in this episode, we're going to be answering the question Do cochlear implants work? Even that question, you already know, is a little bit of a challenge to answer because what do we mean by work? Do they help somebody hear and have access to sound? Do they make someone have normal hearing? What does someone even mean when they ask the question, do cochlear implants work? And so I have a fabulous interview with Dr. Lindsay Cockburn, who is a pediatric audiologist and also blogs and puts out lots of great resources on Instagram and on her blog at Listen with Lindsay. So we're going to jump into that interview in just a minute. But before we jump into that interview, I do wanna let you know that the next Hope Beyond Hearing program is starting on November 3rd. The program is a six-week online support group for parents of children with hearing loss. And it's really, really important to me that there's an integration between the medical side of things, understanding the diagnosis, and feeling empowered that you know how to read the audiogram and that you know what intervention options are available to you and that we focus on language development. That's all one side of learning how to navigate being a parent to a child with a hearing loss. And then there's this whole other side, the emotional side that can really be a struggle to address the shock and the grief sometimes to be able to feel confident and hopeful that you are going to be a wonderful parent, that you are already a wonderful parent, but to give you some tools and not to neglect your own experience within this. So I'm an audiologist. I see many, many families, both as my role in the hospital where I'm a diagnostic and clinical cochlear implant audiologist, also during my time being an educational audiologist and lots of you that I've connected with online. And I really understand the importance of your health, your ability to understand and cope with everything that's coming surrounding having a child with a hearing loss. And I feel like there is not really a place where audiologists have the time or have the opportunity to be supportive in that way for parents. So I do want to tell you that the program will be running from November 3rd for six weeks, so it will end right before the holidays in December, and you'll have access to a private Facebook group with the other parents, and we'll be having weekly group calls where we discuss various topics and really address your heart, how you've been handling this, and getting some great tools like guided imagery and meditations and other exercises that we'll do together in order to feel more confident, feel more prepared to be the advocate that your child needs. We're gonna be talking about how to talk to family members about the diagnosis or the needs that your child has, how to advocate for them in school and ways of building a strong and beautiful and connected relationship with your child and everyone within the family. So I come at this from the perspective of the audiologist because there are various circumstances that really come into play when there is a hearing loss. And that's why I've put together this integrated program, the Hope Beyond Hearing program. And if you're interested in learning more about that all you have to do is visit allaboutaudiology.com slash hope you can go to the all about audiology website and click on hope the link is also in my instagram bio and you can sign up there send me a quick dm or an email to learn more and right now let's go ahead and jump in for our very interesting interview about do cochlear implants work Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein. And today I have a special guest, another audiologist with me, and we're going to be talking about cochlear implants. Do cochlear implants really work? That is a question I've gotten from a number of people and it is not an easy answer. So Dr. Lindsay Cockburn and I are going to be talking about this today. She is from Los Angeles and welcome Lindsay. Tell us more about yourself.
1: Hi, yeah, I'm Lindsay Hockburn. I'm a pediatric audiologist at John Tracy Center, which used to be John Tracy Clinic. I do mostly diagnostic testing, which means I test babies and kids hearing. And John Tracy Clinic Center is really famous and they've been helping people all over the world for 75 years help their children to listen and speak. So it's a listening and spoken language center. We have a parent infant program. We have a preschool for kids with hearing loss. We have telepractice therapy with auditory verbal therapists. They have little apartments set up. So it simulates being at home uh, where they do therapy one-on-one with the kids. They have a program every summer. Families come from all over the world and they stay in Los Angeles for two weeks with their preschool aged kids with hearing loss, where the parents are in an intensive program where they take classes and have counseling groups and uh, see the different professionals. And then the kids are in the preschool class and get ABT speech therapy, and uh, audiology appointments. So I've worked with families all over the world, all kinds of different kids and families with hearing aids, cochlear implants. I've actually worked with a lot of kids with auditory brainstem implants, which is not what we're talking about today, but that's another kind of implant. So I've seen all kinds of kids from all different places all over the world with cochlear implants.
0: That is amazing. Wonderful that you have like such a broad range of patients and like, ages, where they're from, like all that totally goes into how they end up doing with their hearing aids.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And these parents, they come to the center and they learn all these different things and they're so amazing. They take it back to where they live and they are so motivated to, they start their own groups. They start their own support groups. They start their own programs that are similar to what we have. It really revolutionized how different countries help kids with hearing loss and what kind of services they offer them because these parents went back to their countries
0: and they demanded it hmm That's so, so interesting. So I'm from New York and I recently moved to Israel. Now I started working at a cochlear implant center in Rambam Medical Center in Haifa in the north of Israel. And I'm relatively new to the cochlear implant scene. So I'm very interested in learning and hearing more about your experiences, specifically with this question of who can get a cochlear implant, who is it for, who can it help, and who is not a candidate. So, we're going to start with talking about candidacy, which just means who can have this or who is it good for? Cochlear implants are devices for
1: people with hearing loss who. Don't get the benefit that they're looking for out of hearing aids. So if a person wants to use their residual hearing to listen and to talk, they need to have a certain amount of hearing in order to do that. You have to be able to hear the different sounds in order to say them. So if hearing aids are not powerful enough to give you the ability to hear all the different sounds of speech clearly, then you're not going to be able to speak clearly unless you get a cochlear implant. So a cochlear implant is a surgery. The electrodes are placed into the inner ear, into the cochlea. They used to wipe out the rest of your hearing. Now things have changed where a lot of people are maintaining their residual hearing and they're no longer losing that little bit that they have left. And then they close it up and then A couple weeks later, they put the outside device on. It looks kind of like a hearing aid and it takes the sound into the device and it has a little computer in it where it changes it into electrical impulses that electrically stimulate your hearing nerve, which is very fancy, but basically it bypasses the way that your ear normally works and helps you to be able to hear all the different sounds Clearly, eventually, but it's not a miracle. It's not glasses. You don't put it on and then things are changed. It takes a lot of practice, especially because it's not working on just your ear. It's working on your brain. Your brain needs the practice, hearing all the different sounds in order to make sense of the different sounds, in order to have meaning with the different sounds. It takes lots and lots and lots of rehabilitation.
0: we hear here with our brains. The, the ears are just what's bringing it in. So, yep, we say that all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, people who can get a cochlear implant are people, it depends on where you live and what the regulations are. At this point in the U.S., it depends on your health insurance, really, and how much you push. But um, kids can get implanted as young as about six months old with a cochlear implant. And there's no age limit for a cochlear implant. If you're healthy enough to undergo surgery, someone who's, Hundred can get an implant,
0: yeah, and that's also going to continue to go up and up and up as people live healthier, longer lives. Yeah, which is such an interesting thing. Now, I I wasn't as aware of this, but we do have a number of patients in our center who are in their eighties and they're rocking it. Yeah, they really have, and I, I hadn't heard of that because. So much of what we do hear about cochlear implants is about kids. Yeah.
1: So cochlear implants are good for people who are born without hearing or people who lose their hearing eventually. So you can be born profoundly deaf and then get a cochlear implant at six months after trying hearing aids out. Or you can, some people get meningitis and they lose their hearing. Some people have syndromes or different genetic causes of their hearing loss, which causes them to lose hearing over time. And they might need a cochlear implant in order to hear speech clearly. Or people, when you get older, the hearing loss that you get, it's not generally enough to make you go completely deaf or you need a cochlear implant. You usually don't have that much hearing loss, but some people are more genetically predisposed to that. And then they would need a cochlear implant if they are no longer able to use hearing aids in order to hear people talking to participate in their lives and their conversations with their family and their friends and do what they want to do with their life. life.
0: Yeah. And quality of life is such a big portion of, of the whole conversation with hearing that is sometimes left out a little bit (laughs) because, you know, if your whole world and everybody that, you know, speaks, in talks, you know, as opposed to if someone is involved in the deaf community and has another language modality. Uh, most people who are in their life and then lose their hearing throughout their life, then they get older. That really isolates them. That can lead to a decrease in participating in their life, maybe even becoming isolated, depressed. So it can lead to dementia too. Yeah.
1: Or make you more predisposed or make you more more likely to have dementia if you're not participating in your life anymore.
0: Right, right. And stimulating the brain. Mm-hmm. So that's another part of the conversation for adults. So basically the hearing loss is the first criteria. There needs to be enough hearing loss that the person is not able to hear. And then because of that, learn to speak or be able to speak. Yeah.
1: And that amount has been changing over the years too. So before you had to be completely profoundly deaf. Now it's not the same anymore. If you have better hearing in the low pitches or low frequencies, but you don't have any hearing in the high pitches or high frequencies, then you're not going to be able to hear the different consonant sounds and the differences between words. So no matter how loud a hearing aid is, you'll never hear clearly unless you get a cochlear implant. So that has been changing too. So someone could actually get a cochlear implant if they had Normal or mild hearing loss in the low pitches, but it went down to the severe to profound hearing loss range in the high pitches or high frequencies. Mm -hmm. And then another recent change is that cochlear implants just got approved for people with a profound hearing loss in one ear in the US. So that's approved for, I believe, five years and up.
0: So that also really opens up the candidacy for more people to be able to get benefit from the cochlear implant. Mm -hmm.
1: So, in order to get a cochlear implant, another part of the criteria or the candidacy or what you need to have is you have to have a cochlea. So they have to be able to have a part of your anatomy to put the electrode in. Some people, their cochlea isn't fully formed. They don't have all the little turns of the snail shell, but if you have a cochlea at all, they can put an electrode in there, but that's going to change the benefit that you get with the cochlear implant. You will still be able to hear sounds, but it's going to be different than someone who has a complete cochlea, who gets a complete electrode insertion into their cochlea. So you have to have a hearing nerve in order to get a cochlear implant too. And that one is a little bit trickier because the hard part about that is they can't really figure that out. They can look at it on an MRI and see what it looks like on the MRI, but they're still kind of guessing. So it can look like you have no hearing nerve or a thin nerve, but that doesn't mean that you won't get benefit from a
0: cochlear implant. You won't know until you get a cochlear implant how much benefit you're going to get. So the one of the things that, they, that we do before someone can get the implant is, of course, that they have to get approval, medical approval clearance to get the surgery. And part of that is also undergoing an MRI or CT I think MRI more though, right? Because they want to see the bone.
1: It depends on the surgeon. (laughs) It depends on the surgeon and all the surgeons I feel like in the last few years have switched up which kind of scan they want and when they want it. So Mm -hmm. it depends on the surgeon and it depends on if there's more concerns about someone's development or they have more things going on than just the hearing loss, then they're going to be more likely to do an MRI to make sure that the nerves are intact or to, to try to make sure the nerves are intact in the best way that we have right now, which is not foolproof.
0: So let's say there's a brand new baby diagnosed with profound hearing loss at birth. They're going to get hearing aids as soon as they can, try and see if those are giving them benefit. And then there's a bunch of testing, hearing tests, audiology exams that they go through. What do those entail?
1: So for the hearing test, once the baby has the hearing aids, they play the sounds, the baby's in the sound booth. And they play the sounds through the speakers to see what's the softest level of sound that the baby can hear while wearing the hearing aids. So the hearing aids are all the way turned up or programmed to the, the child's hearing loss. And they see what volume are they hearing the different sounds. And that way we can figure out, are they hearing all the different sounds of speech with the hearing aids, or are they not quite getting there? And most people with a profound hearing loss, you're not going to be able to hear to the level that you need to in order to hear speech clearly.
0: So another question I hear from people is saying, when the baby's that small, how can you even know what they can hear? Like, has there ever been a mistake where it's a baby that hears, they just had a false positive on their baby screens, like when they were first born? And then they got implanted, but really they had good hearing. How, like, how can we account for that and make sure that, that doesn't happen?
1: Uh, a lot of times they will repeat the test. They may repeat the ABR test, which is the diagnostic test after the baby is born. And then you should begin early intervention or ideally Observe verbal therapy, early intervention, right as soon as you can. You know, that's going to depend on where you live, what country you live in, what kind of services are offered to you. But that's a teacher in the US that comes out to your house that helps to work with you and teach you how to communicate with your baby. So they're there to help you figure out is your baby hearing with the hearing aids or not? So you have months to observe the interactions, to play loud sounds, to look for a startle reaction. Um, Eventually, when they're a little bit older, a turn to a loud sound. I usually say if you have access to this, depending on what city you live in, um, if you close the garage door and you honk the horn, does the baby wake up or do they startle? Those kinds of like more rudimentary tests that can give you a little bit better peace of mind about where your baby's hearing at. So it's not just one person's opinion that, oh, your baby's not hearing and then they're going to get a cochlear implant. It's a long process of lots of tests, repeat tests, making sure that they're very confident about the answers and that what. What you see at home lines up with what they see in the test booth, lines up with what your early intervention provider sees, and then putting all that information together to determine that your child is a good candidate or they would benefit from a cochlear implant.
0: And I would also say that if there's anyone who really has that worry or has that concern then they should totally 100% go to another center, go to another clinic or hospital and do the testing with a whole different set of audiologists and you know, get a whole different second opinion just to confirm and, and see that they feel more confident because nobody wants to go into it uncertain. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And the other important thing too is that cochlear implants are not for only people who hear nothing. Your baby still might hear something with a cochlear implant, they may respond to your voice sometimes, but if they're only hearing your voice when it's very loud, they are not hearing enough of the sounds of speech. They're not hearing you clearly enough to talk clearly. So just because they respond to sounds doesn't mean that they wouldn't be a good candidate for a cochlear implant or that they couldn't benefit from a cochlear implant or that you'd be sacrificing something for a cochlear implant. It's really about the understanding and not just about the
0: hearing. That is a very good point. What about the family structure, family makeup, access to healthcare, that whole piece of it?
1: Well, a big part of the cochlear implant pre evaluation process where they're deciding if someone is a good candidate is to get an idea of what the parent and the family's goal is for the child. So, where do they see their child going? How do they see them? communicating with other people? Do they want them to listen and to hear different sounds and to talk? Then in order to do that, they're going to need to have the technology in order to hear those different sounds. Are they interested more in having them be completely involved in the deaf community and listening and talking is not only not a priority, but not something they're interested in? That's going to be someone who's not a good candidate, obviously. And then it's the Other really, really important part of counseling is that you have to have realistic expectations about what the cochlear implant can do for your child. So if you buy a treadmill, you won't be able to run a marathon in a year. You have to actually run on the treadmill. If you get a cochlear implant for your child, they're not going to be able to talk in a year. You have to do the rehabilitation and train the brain and do all of this work. So you have to be willing and able to put in the time and the effort in order to train the brain in order to listen. And the good news is that if it's a baby and you're starting very young, then it's a lot easier to do that brain training because of the brain is so much more flexible and changing and babies can learn languages much faster than adults, they can really make sense of the sounds pretty quickly versus someone who's older and gets the cochlear implant who has been deaf for a long time and hasn't had the brain pathways created to those sounds. They're going to have a lot harder time making sense of the sounds and hearing the sounds clearly, and they're going to struggle a little bit more with that. So all those things are important. Other things would be for family dynamics. If your whole family is culturally deaf and no one uses amplification and everyone signs, and you want your child to get a cochlear implant, then you would need to figure out who's going to talk to your child if you want them to listen and to talk. And there are families out there that want that for their child. So either if it's going to be a relative or if it's going to be a program that they're going to be in, ideally someone at home is going to talk as well as at school don't have to live with that person or move or anything like that, but you have to have someone in your life that's going to talk. Because if you're at home signing every day, you're not getting that listening practice in order to make sense of the sounds.
0: And what about, you know, you kind of set it up like either the main priority is listening and talking, or that's not a priority. And is there somewhere in between? It's not yes or no, but it's more like maybe we'll do a total communication with both or... How do you approach it if someone is kind of on the fence or wants to do both or wants some integrative approach?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people who do both. And I think that there's a lot of huge, huge benefits to doing both. What you would want them to understand is that if they want the child to listen and talk, what is required of the child is that they wear the implant all of the time and that they have... Rehabilitation services that they're working with a specialist and listening and talking, and that you're the most importantly, most importantly, excuse me, the parent is talking to the child all the time too and interacting with the child. So if you want the child to listen and talk at any point, that is so so important. So you have to understand that. And then if you want them to sign too, that's great too. You can absolutely do that at the same time, and that's not going to hinder their progress and that's not going to slow them down in their talking. But if you want them to talk. You have to begin right away or it's going to be much more difficult if you wait for years and they wear the implant inconsistently. And then when they're five or seven or nine, then you want them to talk. That's going to be a lot more difficult to get them there.
0: Did you hear the episode with Kimberly Sanzo? That was all about sign language and the bias against sign language in the medical model that was the only one I didn't listen to, I feel like. I listened to the other ones with the
1: with the girl who's yeah. in her twenties who uh, was Jeff who's having the baby. I listened to the other episode with the with the woman with the two kids with hearing loss. I feel like that's the only one I didn't hear.
0: Wow. <laughs> you went through the whole catalog. I I'm so honored. Too. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Okay. So that was basically our one, I would say, controversial episode. And Kimberly Sanzo is an SLP who works very closely with students who are ASL dominant. She's a huge, huge advocate for language over speech and, you know, teaching the brain language, the issues of language deprivation. That is her whole shtick. I just gave you the the rundown of what that episode was about and that there's a lot of bias in the medical model and in hospitals, audiologists, cochlear implant centers, where they would like to convince everyone, persuade, I don't know, that <laughs> CIs are right for them, right? You know, C- CIs are right and they're not right for everybody. So if you could just talk about that a little bit. So it's putting you on the spot. No, that's okay. But I like that. It. <laughs> so it's
1: funny because I work at a place that specializes in listening and talking, and I'm always trying to persuade these hearing families to sign. It's, I'm trying to talk them into signing and they might not be interested in that at all for various reasons. A lot of times when parents, when they've had a few years for everything to sink in and they're like really submerged in the whole all the therapy, all the services, it becomes their whole life. And the kid's a few years older. That's when they maybe meet someone who's in the deaf community. They understand it a little bit better. And then they get more interested in it. But people with babies, it's hard to convince them to be interested in sign language. I give them the resources. A lot of the families, they that is what they want for their children. I tell every family who If I do the ABR on a baby and they have a profound hearing loss, they have especially a no response ABR, which means that there was no response from the brainstem at the loudest level the ABR will go to. I tell them all that they need to use some kind of visual communication and at least be doing some signs with the baby because they won't know until the baby's older what the anatomy looks like and if there has a cochlea or a hearing nerve. So that's so important to start then. And all the families should start if your child has a severe to profound hearing loss, all the families should start from birth using at least some signs because your child is not hearing words. They're not hearing language. They're not getting access to language. That's absolutely correct. But the main issue is if you do both of them halfway, that's when it's a struggle. That's when you have no real language and you struggle to communicate with people. And that happens for a lot of different reasons with families, whether they didn't understand the kind of dedication that it takes in order to get their child to listen and talk. And now they are not able to do that and they need sign language as a supplement so that they can communicate or people who wanted to just do sign language and then their child hasn't been listening for years and then they want their child to listen and to speak if you do it halfway like that that's just not it's going to be much more of a struggle and it's going to be harder to establish that native language or that initial language learning. And the other thing is that you're in therapy one, two, three hours a week, but your child is mostly spending time at home with you. So what kind of language model are you providing for the child, for a baby, for an infant? They don't go to school. So if you can learn, if you can learn signs and use signs with your baby, that's amazing. And I would definitely encourage that, but you're not going to become fluent with a newborn infant. You may be able to have a preschool language level, but someone who is not a native English speaker, I would advise them against using spoken English with their baby. I would advise them to use their native language. We want families to use the language that they are most fluent and comfortable in in order to establish like a strong language basis for their child in order to develop and grow. Cause once you have one language, it's a lot easier to learn and develop the other languages. But if you aren't fluent in sign language, how is your child going to be able to become as fluent as someone is in spoken language? Exactly. And the other, the other biggest issue is how realistic is that? So there's amazing, mostly mothers out there, let's be honest, who dedicate themselves to being A part of the deaf community who go take their children to deaf events, who have deaf friends and deaf mentors, who do all these amazing things with their kids, who are learning sign. They're working so, so hard to learn sign and do all these different things. And that is so incredible. And I definitely, that is amazing what they're doing for their children. But let's not forget that that takes a lot of privilege. That takes time, which means money, which means... It's not something that everyone has the ability to do. Not everyone has the time in order to learn a new language.
0: Yeah, yeah. And access. You're talking about people in urban environments where they have a hundred different classes at different libraries all over versus someone who's in a rural environment and even to get to the hospital is a two-hour drive, let alone a deaf event that's like once a year, Yeah, that's, you know, that
1: they can access. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, it's resources. Are you able to fly out for the Deaf Expo or are you in the middle of nowhere with no deaf people? Don't forget that there's people out there still with no email address. There's people with little to no internet access that I meet every day in Los Angeles. People yeah. forget where they're at and that not everyone is at the same level as them. And the other thing that is really different that people don't think about is if you speak English or if you speak Spanish and you want to learn sign language great in Los Angeles we can try to find the services for you they're, they're available for someone to help you learn sign language but what if your native language is Mandarin or what if it's Korean because those are the families that I've diagnosed then what then how do you learn sign language So that that makes it a lot more difficult for those kinds of people to access those classes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, people want their children not only to be able to communicate with themselves and and community, but grandparents are important parts of the family, sometimes huge parts of the family, sometimes they don't speak English either. So getting them to learn sign language in addition to that, I mean, that is a real challenge. And I definitely, I highly, highly recommend the book Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Have you read that book? No. It's awesome. It's about children that have different identities than their parents. So deaf children of hearing parents is the, the first chapter in it. So it talks about like the biggest variety of families and experiences that I've ever seen presented all at once. And it really helped me to round out my perspective because I used to think, I used to think, why can't these people just learn to sign? What's wrong with them? (laughs) Why, Why won't they just take the class? Why won't they just use the app? It's free. Why won't they just do this or that? And then when I was listening to that, you know, and they were talking about these parents who who moved, who tried so hard to learn sign language, who completely submerged themselves and still couldn't do it, still could not become fluent enough to have, like, a real deep conversation with their child and connect with them, you know, that really made me realize that even families who are really trying that, that is still very difficult. So, yes, your child always is going to have access to that visual language, Unless they start to lose their vision. That is their natural language, but who's their natural language model is my question, honestly. If we're talking about babies, if we're talking about older kids, mm-hmm. I, un- I totally understand. If they're three years old, great, but what about when they're six months old?
0: Then what? I love this tangent because <laughs> language is like, language is the whole goal of everything <laughs> that we're doing, basically, is to try and get access to language in whatever way it is, but you know, with the cochlear implant, we're trying to give people access to speech, to spoken language so that they can also become speakers. I don't know how to say that otherwise. <laughs> so that's this very interesting perspective. I'm glad you're helping me out Thanks. with that. It's really funny how the pendulum I think has swung in the younger generation of audiologists. Yeah. And also as the technology has gotten better, Absolutely. it's like, wait, don't forget about sign language. And it's like. Everyone is kind of grappling with this thing.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's a difficult decision to make because we can talk about the idea about it so much. But what is real for a real family right now? What's real for you? Because right now, more mothers than ever are going back to work. So is learning a new language and becoming fluent a real goal that you can achieve? Maybe. Maybe if you're really good at that, maybe if you're a really great language learner, but maybe not everyone is able to do that, even when they try really hard. And that's something to really keep in mind um, before people judge people who aren't able to learn sign language. And I would say the other thing is that the young adults who I've met who are cochlear implant users who communicate with listening and speaking, a lot of them say that they want to learn sign language, they want to learn ASL, and they want to be able to communicate with the deaf community a little bit better. But mostly because they're super high achievers and having more than one language is always useful and important. You know, they want to be doctors and lawyers. So, of course, if they're fluent in sign language, they would have something else to as another really great skill. And then, of course, it's going to connect you to the deaf community, which is so important to connect to that history and to connect to people who are similar to you. But it's going to be a different experience for everyone. And it's never black and white like that.
0: Yeah. And we talked about that with Toby In the episode where she said she had one foot in one world one foot in the other world which is like let's say there is a young adult like you're describing who wants to learn and then maybe they're excluded from things because oh your sign isn't as advanced like you know you're twenty five. Why are you signing like a five year old? It's like, I don't know, I just started learning, you know. So
1: there could be some of that too. I mean, luckily, I found that most deaf people are so nice and so patient and willing to to help people True. learn and to grow. I mean, that that's been my experience,
0: at least, which is
1: so awesome and so nice.
0: So you brought up when we were preparing for this to talk about music and dance classes for children who get CIs. And I'm so interested, what was the direction you were going with that? I recommend music and dance class to all families
1: with children with hearing loss, because when you move your body with music and you're singing and you're dancing and you have the visual that connects all of the different parts of your brain at the same time and really gives you such a great early cognitive input it has social skills when you're learning to dance with the other kids you're learning to stay on the beat it's great listening practice for the kids moving your body is part of communicating with people um, being able to follow the directions and follow along with the other kids I, we recently had a parent that was concerned that it was too loud and that's not something I would be concerned about for a kid with hearing loss. I think that they can absolutely take a dance class and that they should be just fine, especially if they have a cochlear implant, but it's never going to be too loud for them unless it's (laughs) behaviorally too loud. It's never going to be loud enough to cause damage for them like the other kids in the class that have typical hearing. So music class is always a great idea um, to, to connect all those different parts of the brain together.
0: So earlier we talked about how important it is to have intensive therapies, a lot of effort goes into being able to learn how to use the implant, learn how to listen in order to learn how to talk. And so children are going to get speech therapy, they're going to get oral habilitation, rehabilitation. What are some of the services that kids need or that kids get in order to develop with their cochlear implants?
1: So kids that have cochlear implants, they can work with listening and spoken language specialists, which are also called auditory verbal therapists, who specialize in helping kids to use their hearing in order to listen and speak. So what they do is all all therapy has really shifted over the past few years, uh, even with speech therapy, too. And now the emphasis is so much on play and real life. So before they were, you know, holding your cheeks and pinching your mouth and having you stick out your tongue and you're sitting in a chair for hours. And it's so completely different now. (laughs) Like I was saying at my work, we have these like amazing studio apartments. So there's like a kitchen and they're always cooking together and doing a recipe is a great language. A lesson because following the directions and what goes next? Let's pour. What to I add more to? How does it taste? Yum, yum. You know, there's so much language and things like cooking and routines. And what can you do when you're changing your baby's diaper to help with their speech and language development? So it's so different than the sitting in the chair and being poked and having to do the articulation drills over and over, like the poor kids had to go through, you know, in years past, even. 15, 20 years ago. So young deaf adults had to go through this really, really difficult therapy where they were just trying to get those sounds clear by repeating them over and over. And it's so completely different now. So I feel for those young deaf adults who had to sit through hours and hours of articulation drills and trying to say their R's and S's and sh's and t and, and k. I've, I totally feel for them. It was Therapy was so different then. Now it's so much more play-based. It's so much more about the parents being the main people who are facilitating the therapy for their children. It's about teaching the parents so they can use the skills at home. And the parent isn't going to sit there and they should not sit there with flashcards or with, <laughs> with articulation drills. That is really not the way to go about it. That's a way to make your kid hate therapy they should just be using it in their everyday or finding ways yeah. to incorporate more language and speech in in their everyday life, in their everyday world. When you're walking around, when you're driving in the car, when you're changing the diaper, when you're going to a doctor's appointment, when you're walking at the park, you know how can you incorporate speech and language and listening and learning yeah. into all those different things that you're doing anyways?
0: What children with typical hearing... How they learn language is exactly that through incidentally. Incidental learning is my favorite expression ever, and it just means you didn't know you were learning. Hot got you, <laughs> just just by being around, you're learning. And that's why, for <laughs> and by example, and they're watching and they're listening and they're taking everything in that we're doing and talking. It is overwhelming being a parent sometimes. It's like everything you would say and do is being recorded. <laughs> by these children even the youngest babies like you know you can't get past you know you can't get past those little ones so the kids who are having all these therapies like we just gotta model it after typical life that's the greatest way to go
1: yeah I think it's so much more fun for kids now and that they enjoy it so much more than kids used to, which I totally understand why it was not enjoyable before. I think that that experience is just so different for kids now. And if your child is starting to hate to go to therapy or have behavior issues with therapy, then you should look at your schedule and you should think about how much You are putting your child in every week and maybe you can back down a little bit depending on where they're at with their skills and their listening and spoken language development. If they're already really thriving and doing amazing, maybe you don't need to go quite so much and you could spend that time with them doing something fun instead. And that can help with that. Because there are those parents who take it a little too far and then you can see the kid reacting and, and pushing back and communicating in the way they can that this is too much and then you need to pull back a little bit.
0: So I have an upcoming episode of an interview that I've done with um, the the person who brought auditory verbal therapy to Israel. Oh, wow. The, yeah, an amazing, amazing mom of twin girls who were deaf. I think they're in their early 20s now. So she, she brought this when they needed it, when they were little and really built up everything that's basically in this country in auditory verbal therapy. And one of the conversations that we had was about, you know, the word normal and how do we want our kids to be normal? It's like, well, on one hand, they're not, they're not normal. They're not typically hearing. And then the other hand, it's like, who even is normal ever? What does that even mean? But in some um, of their marketing material, they had used the expression and I was like really grilling her on it and saying, you can't say like the kid quoted, was like a seven-year-old who said, I'm just like a normal kid because I did the AV therapy, whatever. And I was like, that, uh, that like didn't hit right for me. <laughs> that that I was, like, I was like the wrong note <laughs> because it's like, is the point to be normal? No, it's like the point is to help them be able to communicate and listen and, and speak and be part of their family and be part of their community. But like, then I felt like they were taking away that deaf identity. It's like, ah, oh, it was tough.
1: I will say that that kids and and young adults with hearing loss have been some of the most confident people I have ever met in my life. When a parent is so dedicated to spending that one-on-one time with that child, that face you have to be face to face, you have to be close to them, you have to be talking all day every day to them. That's something that parents that have typically hearing kids don't have to do, and they don't have to go to therapy together. They don't have to do all the activities together. They don't have to be So they are so involved, but they don't have to be so directly involved as a parent with a child with hearing loss. So spending all that time getting them to that point, I think that gives these kids such amazing confidence in in themselves. And they do just think of themselves as just another kid. So it's not necessarily that they're normal, but they're like, of course, I'm like everybody
0: else. That's such a great outcome, indirect outcome. That's beautiful for the relationship between the parent and the kid. One of the things that people do a lot when they have a child with hearing loss or even therapy is to say, "What's this?" and uh, "What is this called?" Like constantly quizzing the child to see if they are able to hear. Can you hear me? Like asking all these very direct questions. I know you. You are a big advocate of not doing that. <laughs> so tell us more.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I learned that I learned that the hard way when I told a parent with a child that had typical hearing with a speech delay. I said. You know, you can try to talk in sentences to them like I was just doing and they said, what color is that? I was like, okay, to be fair, that is a sentence, but (laughs) that's not what I meant. So the having the child label over and over, what what color is that? Red, blue, green. What animal is that? What sound does this animal make? That's not a conversation. That's not how we talk to each other. (laughs) Yes, I'm glad that you're practicing. You're seeing what kind of language or speech they're understanding. Great. But most of your conversation should not be that. It should be talking more naturally. How would you talk to a typically hearing child? You would talk in sentences. You'd have the back and forth communication. Ideally, you want them saying more than one word, too.
0: But instead, if you say this one is blue and this one is green, and then you hold up the third one and you just don't say anything, it's not a pressure, like what color is this next color? But it's like, oh, we're doing a pattern and we're talking about all the colors. Like maybe they'll come out and say it on that's the other thing is it's not always fun to do that. And then kids
1: stop talking and that's not effective either. So if it's a quiz all the time, you know, just kind of be aware of that and it should be fun. It
0: should be a conversation. Right. And isn't that interesting that if you are trying to connect and make a rapport with someone and say, wow, Mickey mouse, I love Mickey mouse in an app Look how cool her bow is. Now it's like, Oh, this lady likes my thing which is such a nicer interaction and like immediately builds you some sort of connection with them as opposed to this one with their questions. (laughs) Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So, so make sure that you're not only asking questions and that you're having back and forth communication. If you're only asking questions, you're not interviewing your child, you're having a conversation so you shouldn't (laughs) be asking and then they answer and then you ask and then they answer. I know you want the back and forth and it can be hard when they're not saying anything, I would definitely encourage more pausing it. Sometimes it takes a long time for kids to process the information that you said to them or to come up with what they're going to say. And sometimes you just have to be very patient in order to wait for that answer or to wait for that response.
0: I've heard of the count to 10 and it is the longest 10 seconds oh, yeah. when you're trying. <laughs> Cause you want to give the answer. You want to help them out anyway. So let's go back to the question at the top of the hour. Do CIs work. Do cochlear implants work? What is your answer for this? (laughs) (laughs) My answer for this is
1: yes, cochlear implants work. They're amazing. They're incredible. They actually work better than ever. The technology, even in the last five to 10 years, is different. So it's really incredible what these people who are getting cochlear implants are doing with them. Kids who are getting cochlear implants young, who are getting the rehabilitation, they're talking, they speak clearly. They, the way they talk is different from kids who got cochlear implants when they are older. You can hear it in their speech, in their voice. They do sound like the other kids. They don't have that speech difference that some kids who got implants later have that you can hear in their voice. Um, and they don't have to struggle as much. It's easier for them. Yes, it's still a little bit harder when it's noisy, but they can. They don't have to focus on the person so much. They don't, It doesn't have to be just a one-on-one conversation. They don't have to be lip reading as much. It's just, it comes easier and more natural and all that hard work and that stress and that pressure and that therapy and the poking and the prodding that these poor adults had to go through who had hearing losses as a child. It's just so different now. So yes, cochlear implants, they work. They're amazing. People can learn to listen and talk and speak more than one language, which is more than I can do. So yes, I would say they work
0: pretty well. Awesome. I think a big part of that is like when all the stars are aligned, you know, when everything is going well, then they can have those incredible, super duper outcomes, those superstars. But I think like also a big part of the, of the question is coming from, well, what about these device failures? And what about these kids with multiple disabilities? And what about these kids with language disorders and putting in, you know, there are people who are going to get a cochlear implant and not be successful, quote unquote, not able to develop spoken language. And that's not necessarily the whole story. You know, it's not about the cochlear implant, but about the whole case.
1: Absolutely. And that's so, so true. You can do everything that you can, and you can still have a different outcome than you expect. And again, that comes down to realistic expectations. If you implant a child at six months and then at two and a half realize they have autism, That's going to be a different experience than someone who doesn't have that other language difficulty to contend with. So everyone's going to be different. Device failures do happen. They are pretty rare. A lot of times they can re-implant and people who get re-implanted can have a lot of good benefit with the cochlear implant. There's always risk with surgery. There's always risk with the device. It's a man-made device. It's not going to be perfect every single time. We can all do the best that we can in order to set someone up for success. You have to understand that it, success is never promised to you as the it's part of the realistic expectation. But you should definitely keep your expectations high for your child and keep working hard. And that's the only way you're going to know if they can do it or not
0: yeah. is by doing it.
1: That's true. <laughs> you can't guess. You can't predict. <laughs> you know, we're audiologists. We're not psychics. We can give you all yeah. the tools and we can help you and we can give you the knowledge and the information and the access, but then it's up to you. And then it's up to your circumstances and to luck. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, we can only control so much.
0: Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for this incredible conversation and tell our listeners where they can find you or more of some of the blog posts you've written and more information about
1: you. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. So I have a blog called Listen with l i n d s a y L-I-N-D-S-A-Y.com and my Instagram is at ListenWithLindsay. So come join me there if you want to hear more about audiology and listening and cochlear implants and all about the field of your students studying, I'm talking about that and come send me a message and let me know that you heard me on this podcast so that we can chat too.
0: Thank you so much again to Dr. Lindsay Cockburn for joining us for this episode, Do Cochlear Implants Work? I hope that you have a better understanding of how complicated and complex the journey is and that it isn't really a yes or no question because it's very, very multifactorial and a lot of things come into it. I want to remind you that you can always DM me or send me any messages about anything, any questions or any comments. Leaving a review on iTunes melts my heart. And if any of you are interested in the Hope Beyond Hearing program, do check out the link allaboutaudiology.com slash hope. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast.